Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Welcome back, dear listener, to this week's installment of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. This is episode 34, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm coming to you today from Houston, Texas, back here in the Lone Star State after having spent last weekend visiting the nation's capital as an extension of our wholly unscientific, unofficial, and uh, entirely anecdotal tour of, uh, of the great American recovery. We've been speaking to waiters, Uber drivers, hotel receptionists, uh, porters, pretty much anyone who would listen and sit down with us for five minutes. We want to get their take on the situation on the ground here in the United States. Is the recovery all that it's cracked up to be? Are these price rises that we're seeing in everything from used cars to beef to lumber? Are these prices, as the Fed insists, uh, transitory in nature, these price rises, or are they a forward indicator of some nasty inflation to come down the pike. Well, all this remains to be seen, of course, but in order to help us get a little bit of a look around the corner, we caught up this week with Mr. Owen Tracy. I've been wanting to have Owen on the show for a while, actually. He's a super fascinating thinker and has a broad range of interests. So I was happy to get his take on A bunch of different subjects, including the exodus of Americans from the coastal cities and uh, and the nation's major metropolises to places like this, like the middle of Texas um, and what some refer to as flyover country. So Owen himself was actually part of that story this year. So he was uh, he was happy to tell us his experience there. We talk about that. We talk about uh, the huge bubble that he sees coming down the pike in Chinese real estate and what knock-on effects that could potentially have for emerging markets around the world, as well as the subscriptionization of society, where we are, I'm sure you've experienced this, being reduced to our cash flows one subscription at a time, whether it's our healthcare or our gym membership or Netflix or the planned obsolescence of the gadgets that we carry around in our phones and our uh, in our pockets, uh, it does seem that one by one we are being signed up uh, and, as Owen says, reduced to our cash flow. So we talk about all that and what that might mean in an inflationary environment. We've got all those subjects and plenty more in between and beyond in this week's conversation with Owen Tracy up next. a little uh a little big brother when that lady comes through with her announcement always to me <laughs> I feel like i'm being uh i'm being invigilated monitored and my name's going on some list somewhere <laughs> maybe that's just my own paranoia <laughs> well i tell you what i've um i i go to dubai about once every 18 months two years uh to speak at this sort of uh invest private investor conference and but i only go there for like two three days at a time mm-hmm. um i'm usually on the plane longer than i am in dubai <laughs> and uh since then uh every single time i go through an airport i get pulled aside for security really but would be because you have uh arabic stamps in your passport or I think it's because um, I've got a history of of very short visits to the Middle East. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what, what on earth is anybody going to Dubai for to spend to spend thirty six hours there? Right, <laughs> that's funny. I used to. Uh, my wife and I actually lived in Dubai back in 
2007, 2008. And um, I was working just kind of moonlighting on a, um, a, a business, like a, a journalist desk there on, the, on their business bureau. And it was right around the time, the lead up to what we were referring to as the debubble. And um, it was, they had this kind of self-censorship, as you know, with, with the media where you're, there are certain things you're allowed to say and others which you're just kind of uh, politely and some, in some cases not so politely encouraged not to say um, about the uh, stewardship of the economy there. And I'd written a few articles that were less than flattering about the way that I thought things were going. And they brought down this edict that was a kind of retro, retroactive um, decree stating that anybody who called into question um, the, the sheikh's guidance of the economy was, you know, subject to passport confiscation and, you know, all this kind of fairly draconian measures. And so, uh, yeah, we had to... We, we took an extended vacation to India that ended up uh, with us moving to Taiwan and haven't, haven't actually been back since. So, <clears throat> well, Where is your wife from? Uh, she was born in Norway, but we've got family here in Houston. Well, she has family here in Houston. Uh, oh, so she's not from Taiwan? No, no, we were, we're just kind of nomads. And um, so we're, we're writing out the pandemic here, but mate, I thought for some reason, I don't know why I had it in my head, but that you were in Europe. Um, have, have you been here in Dallas for a while or? Um, well, I was in uh, Los Angeles for about seven years. Okay. And then we, mo we moved to Dallas in May. Okay. I th and that seems to be not, um, not an uncommon route at the moment. Lots of Californians I've met or Californian transplants, I should say, recently have been vacating uh, the Western Front for <laughs> for Middle America. Well, it's anyway. I mean, uh, probably about three weeks after we left, um, the postman was shot um, on the street across from ours um, because someone was trying to steal the mail. And we were living in a nice area. It's not like we were living in you know in mm -hmm. South Central or anything like that. It was supposed to be you know considered a nice part of Los Angeles and just crime rates have just gone through the roof and it's just one thing after another. So we just said, Oh, enough of this. Yeah. Finally, finally people, I think just throw their hands up and say, look, I, I can't take this anymore. Speaking of South central, we were just uh, in Chicago, my family, we went up there for a little visit as we we're kind of touring around the U S getting a, um, a little look at the, at the real world uh, economy boots on ground here. And, and I was, I was really taken aback with just the level of, you know, you go to a, a city and just kind of feel that there's, um, there may be safety issues just kind of in the air. I mean, the, and, and this, uh, this is coming from someone who's lived in Mexico city and Buenos Aires and, you know, other Medellin in Colombia in the last few years. So uh, I'm fairly well attuned to it, but yeah, we we saw some some car chases down um, down Lakeshore Drive, and you know it just seemed like the city was kind of on edge. and And I spoke to people there, you know, just Uber drivers and um, porters and and waiters and such, um, to ask what was going on. And they just seemed to, you know, just kind of shrugged and said, "Yeah, well, this is, you know, this is what we're just this is what we're used to now." And the people outside of these cities don't seem to understand that. You know, calls for a defund the police and and um, and you know that kind of rhetoric really hits people who are living in places like South Central um, or Southside Chicago, rather, and and places where they you know they're the ones seeing skyrocketing crime rates, uh, and it's people in you know gated communities that are rallying for these cuts to police budgets and stuff who won't suffer the consequences of that, uh, which is just another reality in twenty twenty. One USA, I guess. I think it's all part of the cycle. Mm -hmm. You know that uh, you get uh, you get strong policing, and uh, and you know you think about what happened in uh, in California. It was three strikes and you're out, and that would never have been passed mm -hmm. were it not for the support of uh, the uh, basically it was the local black community who were right. attempting to organize and to try and get uh, the crime rates down in their communities mm -hmm. so yeah. that respect for law and order uh, then it delivers uh, 
better law and order and better crime statistics and everyone feels safer and uh, then they get complacent so and then uh, they think it's it's only ever going to get better so then respect for law and order and some of the trade-offs that you get with hard policing starts to come to the fore so then people start to uh, pay less attention to that and uh, give more emphasis to the disenfranchised in another way and then you get the crime spiking and it comes back the other way again so these are all the, you know the way the kinds of uh, things that happen you know we've seen it all over and now you see that the new yorkers they've uh, just elected a former uh, policeman so they right. seem to have finally sort of come around again they've had uh, enough you know. yeah and that yeah, didn't take very that didn't take very long Right. Well, I mean, there's only so many, you know, so many policemen or rather postmen that you can, you know, witness being shot in your neighborhood before people say enough is enough. And as you mentioned, it's, I mean, you know, for all the, for all the uh, grandstanding about um, justice and, uh, you know, social justice movements of the last year, it's really um, communities, you know, minority communities that, that have, you know, that suffer the brunt of escalations in crime so you know it's they're the ones with um you know who are who are notching up the the homicide stats that uh you know are so regrettable in these cities so but it's interesting what you say about those cycles because um i wanted to move into your what you're doing with investments and um and all of this kind of stuff and and before we get into you know, I've been watching a few of your videos and um, reading some articles. But before we get to what you're doing at the moment, I was interested um, just in my research to discover that you actually began as a philosophy student uh, at Trinity, if I'm not mistaken. And it's, uh, I guess it's, it, that's interesting to me, but it's probably non-intuitive for listeners who, um, you know, might think of, of, of a young budding philosopher thinking about the big existential questions in life and, you know, the categorical imperative or, or, or whatever, it's not necessarily intuitive that someone goes from thinking about that to doing uh, what you're doing right now, which is, you know, highly specialized, um, you know, financial analysis and, and you know, really having honed an expert set of skills over many decades. So can you give us a little background on just how that, uh, you know, how that came about? Well, I guess I, I always wanted to work in markets. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't want to be pigeonholed because the first thing that you do when you talk to, when you go to an interview at an investment bank, they go, do you want to work in bonds or equities? And I, I honestly didn't know. Um, so I didn't want to, be, I never want to be pigeonholed. I said, well, I, I always want to have the choice. And then when it comes to, uh, I mean, what I was interested in in school was I, I loved math and English, um, but I've kind of trended more towards liberal arts and I was really interested in history and financial history, but I always figured that whatever there was uh, in history, I could learn from a book. Whereas I really felt like that with philosophy, that I would probably need some form of guidance in education. So that's why I chose a philosophy degree instead of a history degree. And But I always knew I wanted to work in markets. And what I kind of I came to understand was that philosophy is really about analyzing arguments. And that's the intrinsic skill of looking at markets because you always have supply and demand. There's always somebody for and somebody against. And you're basically tearing down arguments. And anyone who's ever been in a philosophy class knows that uh, if you haven't got the reading done, the only thing you have to do is make sure that you're not the first person to talk because everyone else in the class will then tear apart everything you've just said. So all you have to do in markets is do the same thing. You look at the arguments, you look at the supporting evidence, which is in the price, and then you can make a determination about whether that argument is valid or not. Right. Yeah. Interesting. You say two sides to every argument. I, just as we were um, we're about to get on the call here, I was looking at a, a blog post by our, uh, I guess, a mutual colleague of ours, Chris Mayer, and he was talking about, uh, you know, the inflation and deflation argument being two, two sides of the same coin. And if you look at 
at and obviously this is kind of the you know the the, the big ticket um, debate that's kind of going on in in markets across well across the world but particularly in America right now where people are looking ahead they're saying okay you know we we see these numbers ticking up what is that going to do for our investments but depending on who you listen to and what confirma- confirmation bias you're susceptible to you might find um, that there are equally good arguments on on both sides I, I guess it's when when you come to uh, a a discussion or a debate like that um it it uh, behooves you to have that philosophical training behind you in, a, in order to break the terminology down and and really get to the heart of the matter yeah i think and this whole inflation debate of course i mean anyone who's just a normal person and looks at their insurance bill their home uh, their home payment, uh, food bill, energy mm-hmm. bill. Well, they know all about inflation. Uh, you know, so uh, you know this sort of academic discussion about whether we're going to have inflation or deflation. It sort of stands outside of the real world, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the real world people know what inflation is. They've experienced it, and they've also experienced the fact that wages have not kept up with the cost of living, and that more importantly than that is. That I think everyone feels like at this stage, and I think this is probably one of the root causes for a lot of the disquiet that people feel, is uh, that we've all been reduced to a cash flow. Yeah. So, you know, that's how I think people feel. It's, you know, that you you used to be able to just go and buy a new computer and uh, then you would get your Word and you'd get your Excel with it. And... Uh, that computer lasted for as long as it lasted, and then you went and bought a new one. And now you have to pay Microsoft every month. They've decided that uh, they make more money from charging every month than they would from just selling you a piece of software. So, and then you know that sort of. If you then you look at the gym memberships. Instead of going to the gym these days, now you have you have all of these different subscription models. Uh, the TV has become a subscription model. Uh, then healthcare has always been a subscription model because of the insurance market. The, the utilities have always been that way. So we're looking at every single thing that in our lives has turned into a cash flow. And uh, the pressure to maintain all of these things, um, you know, it determines your, your, your value, your self-worth, because how are you going to make all this money? So that's how people feel this inflation. So then these arguments in the, the, uh, in the real, are, these are real world phenomena, but then the argument in the financial markets is, oh, well, it's deflationary. We've got low interest rates and we've got uh, an environment where it's extremely difficult to raise rates and we've got declining demographics. So the kind of inflation that they're looking at, the kind of inflation that arose in the 1970s, well, that's uh, something that they've been afraid of for all this time since the late 1980s. They brought in Paul Volcker. He raised interest rates to the roof, killed off inflation. And since then, they've been terrified of inflation. So Mm -hmm. that has created implicit deflationary bias because every single time since 1980 that inflation of the kind central bankers measure has looked like it was going to come back, they've intervened. And they've raised interest rates and they've choked off money supply and they've really pulled back on it. So that's been a big factor. And I think that's what's changing today. Yeah, it's very interesting, very interesting point that you make about um, individuals being reduced to to these um, these these streams of cash flow, and it really is, you know, where, wherever you look, it's it's uh, it's keeping up with the Joneses with regards to, um, you know, the the subscriptionization. I guess we could we could call it of one's life, where everything now, from your gym membership to your Netflix to um, even one might argue the planned obsolescence of the gadgets that you carry around in your pocket. You know, it must be updated. Oh, you only have an iPhone 10. You know, we're up to iPhone 12 or, uh, you know, programs that um, that over, you know, a couple of years um, fall out of license and you need to constantly update them. So that's kind of where it's being, where people are being squeezed. Uh, I think well, you're even right. Think not- the, the thing that's been at the back of my mind for a while now is uh, they've killed off 
diesel cars. So uh, there was the whole diesel cheating scandal. I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. And uh, those were polluting and uh, nitrogen oxide is, uh, is, uh, is a more dangerous greenhouse gas and it's bad for the environment. I understand all of those uh, problems for sure. But the one great thing about a diesel car is because I've owned a couple and they last forever. Right. <laughs> and uh, they, there's low maintenance costs and they will go for hundreds of thousands of miles. No problem. And I remember I had an Audi A4 when I lived in Ireland and I was getting 700 miles to a tank of diesel. And, <laughs> and in Europe, diesel was cheaper than petrol. So uh, that was like, you know, it was, you were saving money every time you got on the road and the thing never failed. No, and if you need to tinker at, with it, you, if you need to tinker with it, you probably, it's not so complex. You probably could have done so where now you would need, you know, a, a degree in um, computer engineering in order to get behind the dashboard of a Tesla. It's even worse than that, because if you just listen to what Elon Musk is saying, they want to develop autonomous vehicles and uh, they've been increasing the cost of their autonomous uh, program. It's now $10,000. And every time they release a new iteration of the software, it increases in price. Now, you can look at that two ways. You can think this is a fantastic marketing strategy for something that might never work. And uh, it's just a way for the the company to get money and they're going to go bust eventually. Um, And uh, there's no way that the valuation is ever going to be justified. So, you know, that's, that's a conventional sort of bearish argument for Tesla. But there is the other way of thinking about it, and it is, maybe they are going to be successful in developing autonomous vehicles. And if they're not, someone else will be. And the economic value attached to that is going to be quite significant, at which point they would probably be better off just stop selling cars and create an enormous fleet of autonomous vehicles. And then your vehicle turns into a cash flow as well. So you're already paying for your vehicle because you have to pay insurance and you have to pay uh, for uh, fuel, but at least it's yours. Mm -hmm. Now we'll get to a point where you might not even get to own your vehicle. So again, it's a further acceleration of this reduction of ownership and into subscriptions. And this is all a function of low interest rates. That's, it's very interesting but that, that you you mentioned that because it does seem like, I mean, on the one hand, it seems like um, Americans in particular who t- tend to own, what, two or three cars per, per household, they have these enormous, very complex, very expensive machines, uh, oftentimes outside of financial assets, probably their second most valuable asset behind their, their, their primary place of residence. And what do these big, expensive, complex machines do? They sit in the garage for 22 or 23 hours per day, or they sit in parking at their place of work, um, often at some cost, uh, both you know just through parking, probably another subscription, but also the real estate building, you know that that enormous 25-story parking lot that's in the middle of town is is also probably arguably not used as as well as it could be. So I I see that there is some potentially some argument for unleashing all of that latent uh, productive capacity. Um, And I remember a few years ago, I'm not sure if this went ahead, but Uber was doing something where, I think it was Uber was doing something whereby they would say, okay, you drive your car into work and maybe that's, you know, your one hour commute or whatever. But instead of paying to have it in a garage facility downtown for however much per month, um, you can sublease your car out to an Uber driver and then you take some portion of his profits through the day, what, what, whatever that nets out at. Um, and I think those little little ways of disrupting markets, um, I mean, they'll have to find a price at which that works and they'll have to, you know, make workarounds to, to you know, all the objections of, you know, how do we get reliable drivers? And you know, maybe that comes through reviews or some such the way the ordinary Uber, uh, the ordinary Uber app does. But I feel like all those little experiments of trying to unleash um, potential in latent capital is we're kind of moving through some of that right now is that your your understanding or do you 
feel that that's a, a function of a low interest rate uh, experimental economy, let's say? Well, it's, it's, it's certainly what is going on, but what it represents is actually a transfer of wealth, a concentration of wealth through the platform effect. Mm-hmm. So you never thought that your personal data was worth anything. Right. Uh, but when you when <laughs> little did you, you know. <laughs> little little did you know and the reality is is that your personal information isn't worth anything but everyone's personal information is yes so when you put it all together then you can unlock the potential and it's the same thing with it's going to be the same thing with your vehicle you know when your car sits in your garage uh, or in the parking structure well you know, yes, it has latent potential, but uh, you know, you're not going to be able to harvest that. It's going to eventually, it's this concentration effect of uh, this sharing economy. You know, when you think about the, uh, the Airbnb model, well, that has benefited asset owners, the people who own houses. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then they've uh, created business models where people have gone out and bought lots of houses. So, and that represents a significant portion of the people that are engaged in that business model. But it's a very asset-heavy business model because interest rates are low, so you can borrow the money. And it's going to be the same thing with cars. There will be people that will own fleets of cars, and there will be companies that own fleets of cars. And predominantly it's going to be the manufacturers of vehicles will own the largest fleets of cars they'll have competitive advantage so ultimately it's you just won't own a car and you'll simply pay and you will no longer have an asset so when people start talking about the great reset and they say oh you're going to own nothing and you're going to be happy well what in fact happens if we look at everything over history as interest rates have gone down over the last 40 years, we have had more cash flows added on, and now we own fewer things. So uh, this, I think, is the, uh, the big change that's gone on. So uh, we are being reduced to cash flows. Uh, the, uh, the quantity of money that people earn relative to those cash flows has been deteriorating. The trend is accelerating. Uh, so. Uh, we're being sold this whole asset light kind of way of living. And I do think that this is where we're getting towards a climax. Because the one big change that's happened, because this entire theme is predicated on low interest rates. So if central bankers are no longer worried about deflation, and now they want inflation, that's a massive behavioral change. And it doesn't matter whether we get inflation this year or we get it this month or even within the next couple of years. With that behavioral change, it means that they're going to do whatever it takes to get inflation. So I don't think this is yet like the 1970s. I think it's more like the 1960s where we had massive social disruption and we had an expensive war going on. And because of that social disruption, politicians were terrified of significant social unrest. So they simply started printing the money. And that's exactly what we have right now. So you print the money first and it creates a boom, which is what we have. So you get an inflationary boom first. And afterwards, you get the inflationary bust. And we're nowhere near that yet because the boom hasn't run its course yet. But inflation then does start to come back because you cannot simply continue to devalue the purchasing power of the currency and the purchasing power of the individual without it snapping back eventually. So those are the things that I'm paying particular attention to. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting that your your point too about it being a behavioral change because I think what a lot of people maybe aren't quite as focused on is that one of your greatest um, one of your greatest defenses against the corruption and um, debasement of your currency is being 
asset rich or at least having some tangible assets on which you can fall back on. But when you're reduced to being, uh, you know, kind of a permanent renter of almost everything that you consume, that that kind of safety buffer is um, is eroded away, to, uh, to say the least. And to add on to the fact that we're being sold that narrative and willingly signing up for it uh, is, is all the more worrying because it means that people don't really understand, I think, what's, what's going on and, and the way that they're being led. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, it, the, the times in history where you've had people reduced to serfdom, uh, mm-hmm. then that's seldom, <laughs> that's seldom going to end happily because <laughs> eventually people just get sick of it. Yeah. You know, and uh, they're eventually going to want to own things. And then <clears throat> you get the peasants' revolt. So, you know, the, the one thing, and I think the biggest argument against the peasants' revolt is that we have fewer young people. And, uh, you know, we don't have extremely large young populations like we did in the 1960s. So uh, th- that, I think, could be counter-argued because we have the internet today. So it's a lot easier today for people to become organized and people can become organized very quickly and you can have concentration events. You don't have flash to have mobs and, yeah. flash mobs and protest movements and, uh, and what is essentially guerrilla warfare. And I think that the, the people are learning these kinds of tools and they're learning these lessons and they're going to begin deploying them. So I think, you know, this is not going to, uh, die down i think we're in a trending environment and that's exactly go ahead but i think that's exactly where we are today we're in a trending environment and it seems too when you when we if we uh if we indulge the hubris to kind of try and look 10 years out i mean just i remember reading an article very recently about the it was uh comparing the 40-year-old of today uh, and their financial status versus the 40-year-olds of previous generations. And, you know, for people who are 40 at the moment, they typically have a lot more debt. They're carrying typically large amounts of student debt that they've not been able to get around to paying off yet, largely because of exactly what you're talking about, this, you know, being on this perennial subscription wheel um, and having diminished cash flows with which to meet those demands. Um, and now they're watching even discrete purchases. You know, you and I here in Texas, you've been out to steak restaurants recently. It's, it ain't like it used to be. And, uh, and uh, you know, you could, you could feed a family of four for a hundred bucks, uh, let's say. It's, it's some multiple of that uh, now, depending on where you go. But um, I think if we look for where the 40-year-olds the of today are going to be you know, heading into um, the end of the 20s or the next decade, they're in a much more precarious position than were their preceding, uh, you know, forefathers, where they at least maybe owned their home or a significant portion of it, so they weren't reduced to to renting. Um, you know, maybe they owned their car. They probably owned some slice of their business or had um, had been in it for long enough to accumulate some kind of, you know, shares in the bank that they worked at or what have you. Uh, that's that's not the future that is facing the this generation uh, going forward, which is worrying. I think there is there is that that there there is this quantity of debt that's outstanding and it infects everything. And I'll tell you the one thing that really stands out to me is you know that uh, California has low property prices, low property taxes, high property prices, and because of the high property prices. Uh, for example, the one thing that stood out to me moving to Texas is that you, you, when you go to a steak restaurant, it often comes on a bed of risotto. Now, <laughs> risotto takes 20 minutes to cook. And to make risotto, you have to stand there and stir it. So you can't pay someone to do that in LA. Risotto practically doesn't exist. Right, it's $15 it an hour risotto. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, that means then that uh, you, the, the range of things that's a, that are available, and, the, and I certainly see it in supermarkets, the range of products that are available simply because a supermarket can only have so many square feet. They can't stock the shelves like they would here. So there are more products available, even though property taxes are higher in Texas. And as a result, 
property prices are lower, which means that people can have larger places. And that mm. certainly feeds through into consumerism. So we do have this sort of, there are different ways of looking at things, even within the USA. Yeah, it's, it's good. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Because I was going to branch off into a completely different point now. <laughs> no, I was just going to piggyback on that, on your uh, observation that it, re- you know, it really depends on what part of the U.S. you're in. I mean, it it obviously is a United States with a with a you know a, a central bank and a federal uh, you know monetary policy, etc. But I think for you know people who maybe grew up in Australia, myself, or or uh, in Europe, in Ireland, yourself, it's we look at. We, we sometimes look at, at the U.S. as a, a big homogenous market when, you know, here in Texas, there are 30 million people. I think it's probably the, the eighth or ninth biggest economy in terms of GDP in the world. I know Texas, uh, California rather, is something like fit, the fifth or sixth largest and has, I think, maybe 45 million people. So we're really talking about, you know, states that are the size of entire nations. And, you know, they're, it's more like measuring the difference between, say, I don't know, Hungary and Belgium, um, when you look at something like Maine and you know Montana, um, so you do get to see these really vast um, vast differences, not just in um, property taxes or or property prices, but also in consumer spending patterns um, with hiring patterns. I mean, we would, as I mentioned before, just up in Illinois, and as we're taking our Uber out to the uh, the airport to fly back down south. Um, our driver pointed out to us the first um, the first serverless McDonald's in the country. And he, you know, they have these big kind of touch screens where people order their menus and order their McMeals or whatever. And um, he had the presence of mind to realize that that was a direct result of Illinois' campaign for higher minimum wages, <laughs> where the McDonald's said, okay, you want fifteen dollars an hour or whatever it was? Well, we'll have com- we'll have computers do that now, and you just see what happens to your unemployment rate. I think that's that kind of uh, mechanization of the economy is something that's going to happen one way or the other. So you know we're we have this big problem, and you know, the classic way of looking at it in terms of economies is that you need more people because it's productive capacity of individuals and consumption by individuals that drives the economy. But as mechanization and artificial intelligence improve, then the relative benefit of having lots of less well-educated people, uh, I think, is more of a burden than it is an asset. And I think this is something that we're going to have to come to terms with over the course of the next 20 years. But it's particularly relevant for the emerging markets because we've had a, you know, a mass migration of manufacturing over the course and as a direct result of uh, globalization to the emerging markets where wages are way lower. And even there, we're starting to see mechanization creeping in. So that's going to be particularly relevant for places like India and for Africa. Because the route to economic wealth through manufacturing clothing and the garment industry is uh, becoming less and less easy as, as things go on. So at the one hand, we look at the problems we have here, but we also have problems elsewhere. And what's going on with the Chinese property markets at the moment, I think, is something that's sort of out there on the horizon that's a potential big issue. So it's going to be interesting to see how they manage it because China Evergrande is the largest debt issuer in the Emerging Markets Bond Index. And their their bonds to mature next March are trading at a yield today of 108%. So that represents a a rather large risk rather that large indeed <laughs> that they're going to default mm-hmm. so uh, their share price is collapsing and it's dragging down the other property developers so one way to look at markets is you look at the asset class that most people in a country own so the USA is an equity market most people 
own equities, politicians talk about equities, central bankers watch the stock market. In Europe, it's about bonds. Retail investors own bonds. And the uh, when you talk about investing, people want to talk about bonds before equities. So, And then the governments, they have tons of them. So it's a real bond market. But in China, it's property. And mm. property is where everybody has their spare cash stashed. Because deposit rates are artificially low. They're uh, and there's this massive difference between the lending rate and the deposit rate. So you really can't make any money by depositing your money in the bank. You have to put it somewhere else. And where they put it is in property. So you have these property uh, developers that they have a constant need for liquidity because they have to pay the local governments to buy the land. Then they have to uh, build on margin. Because you, they can try to build off the plans, but uh, you know that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So they always have a requirement for cash. Now you have this: uh, the fact that the Chinese government is leaning on the stock market, and uh, they killed off the uh, the tutoring and education sector this week, and they've been leaning on Alibaba and and financial for the last few months. And before that, it was ten cents. So there is definitely. Uh, a more uh, ambivalent attitude toward stocks. And then they are starting to say that defaults will be allowed. Now, they never allowed mm. defaults until about three years ago. Mm -hmm. And now China's allowing defaults. And the price of property in tier one cities has been going sideways for three years because they stopped people from investing. So leakage occurred. And it went into the third tier cities. So the really small places started building. And in the last six years, the price of property in these tier three cities that no one's ever heard of has doubled. So that was where that leakage went. So now you're seeing property developers going bust. And property prices are at extraordinary levels. The price of property in tier one cities is sort of around where it would be in Munich, Germany. That's mm -hmm. about where the price per square foot is. So pretty expensive because Munich has had a roaring bull market in property for the last decade. And international trade with China um, is under question and the currency is starting to depreciate again. And are investors going to start to pull money out of China because they're weighing on the stock market? That will decrease uh, their access to liquidity even further. So I kind of look at this as, well, maybe the central bank is going to wade in and rescue them again. And if they do, well, then they'll delay the comeuppance until later. But it is something that's out there on the horizon. People talk about black swans and things that you kind of need to be aware of because they might cause a problem. Well, China and its property prices starting to roll over in a kind of a 2006 US kind of way is certainly a potential problem. So it's not apparent that that is urgent today, but it is certainly something I'm monitoring. Yeah, that's a that's an extremely um, interesting confluence of events under potentially having mechanization undercut the earning capacity of low wage labor, coupled with uh, some fracturing in the value of um, of people's largest asset class. Yeah, that's that's not a great recipe. So uh, on that point, I'm, I mean, I know you're monitoring the the horizon for the proverbial black swans and such. Do, when you when you approach um, a potential investment, is it for you? Is it more okay? Let's get a let's set the macro argument uh, as a as a kind of backdrop, and then look for opportunities within some um, some you know subset of a market. Or are you running screens and looking at at opportunities that pop up in you know? I know you've written um, extensively for for gold newsletters, tech newsletters, kind of all over the place. So. It, is it, uh, or is it a combination, some combination of the both? I think as, as a, a private investor, what you get to be is a judge at an international beauty contest. 
<laughs> so you you get to look at all of them and only choose the most attractive. So I like technology because it's uh, solution-oriented. And uh, there's always going to be problems that humanity is faced with, and our answer universally has been technology. So, uh, and the pace of technological innovation continues to accelerate. So that that's certainly something I'm interested in, and I will remain interested in technology as long as interest rates don't spike higher, because technology is dependent on liquidity, and <laughs> you can fund any manner. You can put. You can put rockets into space. You can develop uh, mm -hmm. reusable rockets because you, and electric vehicles uh, because you have access to li cheap liquidity. So the realm of the possible is extremely wide when you've got low interest rates. And uh, then when you have to focus on interest rates uh, later, when interest rates rise, well, then that becomes a really big problem for the kinds of companies that didn't make it to profitability. So... Mm -hmm. It's a sector that will continue to do well as long as interest rates stay down. Gold will do well when interest rates begin to rise because uh, the interest rates would only rise when they're chasing inflation. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, uh, that's something that I'm particularly interested in because gold miners are trading at remarkable valuations and they're more profitable than they've been in decades. So, And the fact is nobody wants them. So I think that's even more attractive because uh, when you've got beautiful cash flows and you've got dividends increasing and you've got a price that has been holding steady for a year in the region of the previous all-time peak, I think this is uh, you know primed for additional upside. I'm uh, very enthused by emerging markets, but I think that China is an awfully big risk. And I think that uh, there's going to have to be some form of decoupling uh, in the eyes of investors between China and everything else. Yeah, it does, the one it, place that I ahead. think is really interesting is Mexico. Okay. You know, nobody likes Mexico. And uh, the only thing that anyone's ever heard about in Mexico is the, uh, the drug cartels. And there's really great programming on Netflix, um, you know, right? <laughs> focus, <laughs> focusing on exactly that problem. Uh, they've, but, got a, they've got a big PR problem down there, I'd say. Yeah, they do. Um, but they also have a land border with the US, and uh, they're a manufacturing hub, and their currency is appreciating. You know, and uh, you know it's likely to be one of the primary beneficiaries of uh, this uh, repatriation of uh, some assets away from the major manufacturing centers in Asia. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, you, um, that you're able to pivot from, uh, you know, from one attractive um, section of the market to another. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's got to be tough for people who are focused on, let's say, just commodities, and then you have to weather, you know, some super cycle bear market and just sort of, you know, focus on preservation for, for 10 years, but it seems like you're able to, you know, as you say, judge an international beauty contest and say, well, look, uh, it's, it's a risk on play here. We've got guys, uh, you know, blasting off to the moon every other week. There's lots of exciting solution sets that are being tested, many of which will fail, but, but uh, it's an, it's a, an invigorating place to be for the moment. And then when, you know, interest rates rise, liquidity dries up, then, then it's, um, you know, then you get to have a look at some of the other, sections but uh i realize i'm taking a, a bunch of your time here mate i did want to get to something that i'm uh, also interested in i noticed you're uh, a scuba diving fan i'm not sure how much of it you've gotten done in the last uh in the last couple of years but where are the pelagics in uh, 2021 2022 are you, are you looking to uh, hop off to Jamal Sheikh or great barrier reef or what's on the agenda I think uh, the uh, the one place that I really want to go back to is Cocos Island. You know, that's uh, <laughs> that was the, the 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 best one I've ever been to uh, because you get to see a whale shark in the morning and you get to uh, night dive with white tips and you get to be part of the pack. And I thought that was one of the the most uh, incredible experiences I've ever had was to. Uh, go diving um, at night with white tip sharks and they mob the little portions of the reef so that uh, <laughs> the the small fish panics and 
swims into one of their mouths and they do that wow. often enough. So all of them get fed and, <laughs> and you've got a light. So they, they go around you and you uh-huh. go, you become part of the pack and you hunt with the white tips and it's just a magical experience. So wow, that yeah, was, it does sound, that, it sounds it's half magical, half terrifying. <laughs> well, you know, they, they've only got a mouth about six inches wide. So, you know, it's, uh, you're not their prey. You're about as big as they are, you know, so they just, they just think of you as one of them. So it's, uh, right. it's, it's, it's really rather interesting. I, uh, I was reminding my, uh, my six-year-old daughter just the other day, as it happens, we were in, I mentioned before we lived in, uh, in Mexico city for a while, but when my folks came out to visit back in, I think 2017, we took them out to Belize and, and did some diving out there. And at the time, my, my daughter was only three years old. So she really was kind of bite-sized for, <laughs> for some of those sharks, but she had a fantastic time and she's looking forward to getting back in the water again. Uh, so mate, before we go, tell, tell us where we can, uh, where we can find your work, uh, what you're up to now and, and how people can, can follow along with what you're doing. Well, I guess I'm sort of an editor at large at the moment, um, because, um, I'm developing a, a new, uh, seasonal trading strategy, um, with, uh, legacy in Florida. Then I write a daily blog as well. Uh, so, uh, Fuller Tracy Money um, is where people can sort of find my daily thing. Um, and I sort of pop up um, left and right. So I think the, the best place to find me is on Google. Yeah, and definitely check out uh, check out Owen's daily. You do, is it four daily videos uh, per week and then a kind of weekly wrap on, on the Friday? That's for Fuller Tracy Money, is it? That's right, yeah. So I do sort of the daily recap of the global market. And then I do a long-term uh, discussion of everything that's going on and put it try and at least put it into context of where the big picture is every friday right and hopefully as uh, people have listened to uh, the last hour or so it's uh, it's super interesting to talk to you owen there's uh, opportunities all over the world and and you've certainly got a good read on what's going on so mate thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Hopefully we'll be able to catch up for uh, a, a steak and some risotto here in Texas at some point. Well, I really look forward to it. And I really, uh, I love it talking. So thanks very much. Good stuff, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.